What up guys, before we jump into today's bonus episode, I've got some merch news. Does the phrase Black Friday fill you with anxiety? Me too. Well, be anxious no more because the Genius Life merch is having an epic Black Friday sale that you can partake in without needing to brave the crowds that are playing bumper carts. From Friday, November 27th, this Friday, to November 30th, we're offering a free sleep mask with all purchases that are greater than $35. Talk about gains, gaining good sleep because of your new sleep mask, gaining sweet sweat and gaining time with family and friends by not needing to venture out into the mess that can be Black Friday. It's a win-win-win. You can check out all the Genius Life merch at thegeniuslife.com. Pro tip, order either of the t-shirts and you've already spent $35, which qualifies you for the free sleep mask. Extreme gain status activated. Again, that's thegeniuslife.com for all of your Genius Life merch needs. Free sleep mask for orders over $35. And now, welcome to episode 138 of The Genius Life. What up, everybody? We're back. Welcome to another episode of The Genius Life. I'm your host, Max Lugavere, a filmmaker, health and science journalist, and the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Genius Foods and The Genius Life. Today's guest is no stranger to The Genius Life family, and his name is Sal Stefano. Sal is a co-host of the popular podcast, Mind Pump. He views fitness as a way to apply hard work and effort towards changing and reinventing oneself. A man after my own heart, Sal devoured every fitness, physiology, and nutrition publication he could get his hands on from a very young age. His appetite for knowledge is voracious, and he used his passion for learning to maximize his own body's potential. By 19, Sal was managing health clubs, and by 22, he owned his own gym. After 20 years as a personal trainer, he's dedicated himself to bringing science and truth to the fitness industry. I know you don't need me to tell you this, but Sal is legendary. In this episode, Sal shares how fitness done right rewards you with numerous lifestyle improvements, whereas done wrong, it just becomes stressful punishment with results that may actually run counter to your intentions. We chat through the best ways to find time in your day to work out, whether it be for an hour or even a half an hour. Remember, those 30 or 60 minutes don't have to be consecutive. Chipping away at a fitness regimen for 10 minutes at a time always beats zero minutes. We also cover ways to boost your metabolism. Sal recommends building muscle as the closest thing to a panacea there is and explains why women shouldn't be afraid of bulking up by following a muscle building routine. Sal exudes a passion for learning and myth busting, two massive aspects of the genius life. It's always such an honor to get to spend time with Sal and the Mind Pump team. I'm totally pumped for y'all to take a listen. It's a good one. Mariah Carey once said, all I want for Christmas is you, but I'm pretty sure that the first version was all I want for Christmas is a Paleo Valley meat stick. Well, Mariah, the Genius Life and Paleo Valley family have you covered. From November 20th to December 4th, Paleo Valley is offering 20% off your purchase with code MAX20. Paleo Valley's 100% grass-fed beef sticks are the only beef sticks in the USA made from 100% grass-fed, grass-finished beef and organic spices that are naturally fermented. Flavors range from jalapeno to summer sauce to the OG original. These meat sticks are the perfect snack to keep you full and taste delicious. You'll be so full and happy that you might actually turn your camera on for that dreaded 3 p.m. Zoom meeting. And remember, between November 20th and December 4th, Paleo Valley is offering 20% off your purchase with code MAX20. So what are you waiting for? Head over to paleovalley.com and don't forget to use code MAX20. And as for the current favorite flavor, you're going to have to wait until next week. Jalapeno versus teriyaki? The world may never know. 
I recently moved into a new home and I love it. It was time. I was in my quaint West Hollywood apartment for over 10 years. When I moved into my new home, it was like a blank canvas, which was so fun. I made it a home home by hanging artwork that represented me, you know, just a casual cow and olive oil print here and there. I wanted to match the beautiful streamlined aesthetic of the artwork that I'd chosen with the rest of my house. And that's why I ordered from Public Goods. Public Goods not only makes sustainable, high quality, everyday essentials made from clean ingredients at an affordable price, but they do it in a way that creates a direct from architectural digest aesthetic throughout my house. I have their beautiful shampoo in my shower and then the crisp white matching hand soap on my sink. The design eye is not something that I intuitively have, but Public Goods makes it oh so easy by not only having a great product, but by also having products that look amazing. Check out their website and you'll automatically understand what I'm talking about. Head over to publicgoods.com max or use code max at checkout. That is P-U-B-L-I-C-G-O-O-D-S.com forward slash max to receive $15 off of your first order. I'm really proud of my home and thanks to Public Goods, I can also be proud of the everyday essentials that I stock it with. They look good and they're made with dope ingredients. So check them out, publicgoods.com slash max. All right, guys, I'm ready to roll right into this conversation with Sal. It's a good one. But before we do, it'd be careless of me if I didn't share this thoughtful iTunes review from someone in our Genius Life family. Day One Two states, Max not only has great guests with great topics, but always has practical, easy to implement life improvement ideas. Day One Two, thanks so much for your review. I'm lucky to have such powerful listeners who want to take charge of their health. I applaud you. And with all that, let's now move on to episode 138 with the legendary Sal Stefano. He's my homie, and uh, yeah, love this guy. Here we go. Sal Stefano, what up? Oh, Max, how you doing, man? Dude, I'm so glad to be back in your loving arms in San Jose, California. <laughs> yeah, thanks for coming. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to come down to see you, but um, you know, uh, my wife was at the time. She's now just had the baby, pregnant, had to stick around, couldn't leave. Um, now I have the baby. So now you're here in our studio, and I'm just sleep deprived. So oh that's, man, that's well, all we got. but that's huge, Mazel Tov, dude. Like, Thank that's you. amazing. This is your third? Third, yeah. yeah. Wow. I, have a, I have a 15-year-old, 11-year-old from a previous marriage, and then now uh, Aurelius. Aurelius Jordan Stefano was born on the third. Oh, my God. Yeah, so I got to hit the restart button. You must be busy. It's, um, I mean, having kids is at once the most challenging, busy, expensive thing you could do, but also the most meaningful, purposeful thing. I mean, it's funny. They, uh, I remember years ago reading this uh, study that came out that said that uh, couples that don't have kids report more happiness than couples that do have kids. And so everybody was like, oh my gosh, if, you know, <laughs> whatever, made a big deal about it. But then when you look at the actual study, what you see is that's true, but when they ask purpose, meaning, uh, you know, who has more meaning in their life, who has more purpose, the people with children. And um, I think that's really good because, uh, you know, happiness is great. Uh, but meaning and purpose is what's important because life is hard. It's just hard for all of us. Mm. So having those things that give you that that sense of meaning, like nothing does that like for me, like my kids, nothing at all. So yes, life's going to be much harder, <laughs> uh, but better. Well, let me just set the stage for people listening. We're up here in San Jose, California. It's chilly out, but uh, I just taped an amazing episode with you guys. It's going to come out on your, on your guys' podcast. And we just got to enjoy some really delicious, grain-free, gluten-free, uh, keto, keto friendly snacks from my good friend Mina over at Misfits Bakehouse. Yes, dude. I, so I've never tried his stuff. So you invited him over, right? He brings it out, and if he didn't tell me that they were what you just said, I wouldn't believed it. 
unbelievably delicious. Yeah, right? he's gonna he's gonna blow up for he's sure. He's gonna blow up. Yeah, for sure. Like I, this is the first time I've ever had grain free, gluten free, and and allegedly keto friendly baklava. And it was like one of the best things I've ever had. And then we had these amaretto cookies or something. Yes. And I can, you know, being the Italian one in the room, that was, <laughs> I can attest they tasted legit. Wow. Yeah. Well, so they did a good job. Well, needless to say, if you guys uh, want to check out Misfits Bakehouse, he just hooked us up. It was really nice of him. You go to misfits.kitchen, misfits.kitchen, really delicious stuff. If you have a sweet tooth or whatever, but you're trying to adhere to your, your dietary goals, which I totally understand, um, really great, great offerings. Um, well, dude, so you've been really busy, obviously. You're running a, a, an amazing business here. You've got you know, your, your obligations to your boys at Mind Pump. You've mm. got your three kids and your wife, Jessica. How do you stay fit with all of these demands on your time? Yeah, so you know, the thing, one of the things that I love about fitness, or especially that I loved about training people, is you, you want to use fitness as uh, a tool. Um, and it's a tool to supplement your life, to improve the quality of your life. And it's very moldable. It's very, very moldable. I can, I can change it. I can, I can change my training. I can change my approach based on my current lifestyle. So uh, I'll give you a great example, right? So um, let's say I have uh, things are all in order. I'm getting good sleep. Um, life is pretty smooth. I want to really push my strength gains. I want to really push fat loss. I want to get really shredded. Well, I can up the intensity. I can train uh, with uh, more volume. I can increase the frequency of my training. I can push it harder to do those things. But let's say something happens. Let's say something really stressful happens. Somebody in the family gets uh, ill or you have a newborn uh, like I do, which uh, stressful differently. It's stressful for different reasons, right? Well, now I can use training to augment to improve my health, to reduce stress, right? So now when I'm in the gym, I may not be training myself with the same level of intensity and volume, but I may be in there to give myself a break. I may be focusing more on mobility, flexibility. I may train myself to uh, work on recovery, to balance out my hormones. And really your, and I think this is true with diet as well, it should fit your lifestyle. It should make your lifestyle, it should improve your life not be a counter to your life. Because if you train inappropriately based on the context of your life, then training becomes just another stress. It can become another problem. It can cause issues. Um, you know, like, uh, for example, lifting weights raises testosterone uh, when it's done right and when it's in the right context, right? Ra lifting weights in a way that doesn't match the context of my life can lower testosterone. Like if you're overtraining, right? Over and overtraining is very different. Uh, depending on the the scenario and the situation, depending on the amount of sleep that you have, depending on your of course your genetics, your recovery ability, your your past fitness levels, the dose has to be right when it comes to your your fitness routine. More is not better, and less is not better. It's it's not like money where the more you get, the better it is. If you don't miss that right dose, you get not, not only do you get diminishing returns, uh, oftentimes you get uh, the reverse. Um, you can actually encourage your body to do things like store body fat. You can actually get your body to lose muscle, believe it or not, through overtraining or training inappropriately. So at the moment, uh, because I have a baby uh, at home and I have uh, some equipment in my garage, which is great. That makes it very convenient. What my workouts are probably going to look like is I'm probably going to do lots of small mini workouts. So I'm probably going to find a 20-minute nap. So I may go in the garage and do uh, 20 minute, you know, back workout. And then maybe later in the day, 
I find another 10 minutes. So now I'm going to do a 10 minute mobility workout. And I may find and what you'll end up finding uh, when you do it this way is you'll you'll probably end up finding anywhere between 30 to 60 minutes a day, where you can inject exercises and workouts and, and really, I mean, because uh, the question I get with pe from people when I talk about this is, well, how do I program that? What does that look like? Is it random? And act some activity tends to be better than none, so long as it's appropriate, again. But you can still follow a program. So if you have a workout that typically takes you an hour, you can just chip away at it. So I can look at my workout and I did, you know, 10 minutes of it. And then the next, you know, time I have a 15 minute break, I did 15 minutes of it. And by the end of the day, I've done my 60 minute workout. So that's probably what it's going to look like um, now, at least for the next few months when we're in those kind of critical you know, early stages of baby feeding and pooping all the time, and yeah. trying to support, you know, uh, you know, my wife, uh, through this whole process. And what, what it ends up doing when I train this way is I'm able to maintain a good level of fitness. You know, one thing that is, um, that's interesting that I like to communicate to people is there's a, a you don't need to train quite as hard, quite as long or quite as often to maintain as you did to get. That's what I was just going to ask you because yeah. I feel like my loftier, my more lofty fitness goals have kind of gone to the wayside during this period in which I don't really have access to a or easy access to a gym. But I'm I have been under the impression that it requires a lot less uh, volume or intensity or maybe both to maintain than it is to initially, you know, perhaps put on that muscle. It does. This is true for even uh, for protein intake even. So like studies will show that a high protein diet is ideal for building muscle. And the way they define high protein is 0. 0.6 to 0. 0.8 grams of protein uh, per pound of body weight for an, an average weight uh, individual. So if you're obese and you want to use lean body mass. You can eat a lot. You can eat less than that and maintain quite easily. Hmm. Uh, but that's just optimal for building. When it comes to training, the same thing. If you want to gain strength, improve your performance, um, again, so long as it's appropriate in terms of the context of your life, you need to train at a certain intensity, a certain volume, a certain frequency. To maintain, it's usually less. So you can keep yourself in pretty good shape when things get rough just by training. And typically, it's and it's usually around sixty percent of what you were doing before. And the longer you've been training, the uh, the, the the better this works. So if if you just got in shape, then uh, it might not. It's going to be a little bit more difficult. But if you've been consistent for years and years and years, then you don't need to do quite as much uh, to maintain. And you see this with old older fitness enthusiasts and athletes that they can they used to train six days a week to maintain their bodies, and now three days a week does does the job. Yeah, now if you, but if you're going to a gym and you're accustomed to say doing, you know, like dumbbell presses with seventy pounds in each in each arm, how does that translate to like doing push-ups? Like, you know, it just seems like a, it's a dr such a dramatic weight reduction. You're right compared to that. Yeah, no, you're right. So the so you know when you're working out, your body doesn't. I mean, obviously, it's not counting the pounds, right? Doesn't it doesn't know the difference between a 70-pound dumbbell and a 100-pound dumbbell, it, it knows the difference in tension, hmm. right? So it doesn't know what the weight is. I mean, if you put me on the moon, a 70-pound dumbbell, still 70 pounds, but on the moon, it weighs much less. And So it's all about the tension. So let's say I'm, I'm stuck and I don't have access to the 70-pound dumbbells and I'm just doing push-ups. Um, slow down. You could slow the reps down. I can increase the tension by squeezing my elbows together, gripping the floor, um, I can speed up the reps, uh, even slow down the reps. I could be more explosive with my repetitions. Um, I could, of course, modify angles and form and technique uh, to do it. 
But you'd be surprised uh, at how easy it is to maintain without equipment just by creating more tension. I mean, you could do a bodyweight squat slowly with, with, by tensing up your body mm. and do 10 reps. And even if you're really fit, 10 reps can be quite exhausting and you can get a pump in your quads by doing that. Um, adding weight is one way to add intensity, but it's not the only way. So there's a lot of things you can do to make your workout work for you. So, so if you're, if you don't have access to a gym or you're stuck at home, that doesn't mean you're screwed. Not at all. Yeah. Often I'll do like, you know, d days go by where all I'll have done were 10 minute in, you know, 10 or 15 minute workouts. And I'm actually surprised at how well I've been able to maintain, you know, my physique. I'm not like hitting new PRs or anything like that. Like, you know, I have no way of, I would have no way of measuring them anyway, because I don't have access to a gym, but like, I'm surprised at how these like shorter, you know, perhaps more intense workouts, how effective they can be in terms of like what they do for your mental health. I mean, you know, you obviously you get a great pump and all that, but I've, I found that I've been able to like maintain my strength pretty, dude, pretty well. Dude, this, uh, so you know, it's funny about this. This is not just for maintaining, by the way, this is a strategy that high level athletes, Olympic lifters have used this for a long time, you know, back when during the Cold War, the, the Soviet Union was just so dominant in uh, Olympic lifting sports, right? They were just, they would just crush everybody. And when the Iron Curtain came down, a lot of their coaches came to the U.S. or we learned about some of their training techniques. And one thing that they did was they would train frequently throughout the day at a, at a moderate intensity. So rather than doing it all in two-hour workout, they would train all day, you know, 20-minute intervals, and they found tremendous performance gains. When you talk to people who um, have spent long stints in prison um, with no access to equipment, you know, the whole stereotype, right, of somebody going off to jail for a couple of years coming back, coming out, and they're totally shredded and swole and, AF. and, and muscular, um, they do these, these workouts, you know, like 10 push-ups every hour, you know, try that out, right? If you could do 50 push-ups, 10 push-ups is nothing. Do 10 push-ups every hour. Try doing that for every waking hour. And this is more for performance, for like extreme performance. Watch what happens to your body. Um, I, you know, I remember years ago managing gyms. I used to have this trainer that worked for me who was just exceptionally built and strong. And I used to love, and I still do this, I still love learning just different nuances and different ways that people train. And I remember watching this guy uh, in my gym. He was a front desk guy, actually. And again, real muscular fit guy. And I remember watching him every once in a while uh, on break, he'd go to, the, to the, the weight area, he'd load up the barbell and do one set or two sets of bench press, then he'd go back to work. And he'd do this like throughout the whole day. And this guy could bench press. Uh, it was like twice his body weight or something like that. So it's so strong. I remember thinking, this can't be how he trains. I thought maybe he's just bored. And I, thought, I, I hung out with him one day and I said, man, you, you're so damn strong. Like, what do you, how do you work? What do your workouts look like? And he goes, Oh, I, I, I do 10 minutes, 15 minutes here and there. So, yeah, but what do your workouts look like? He goes, That's my workout. <laughs> he said, When I get a break and I get a chance, I go out to the, to the weight area and I'll do a moderate intensity set. And, um, it just, it works really well. So I tried it, I actually tested it out. And it was for me at the time, one of my big goals was to be able to bench press 350 pounds. This was back in the day. I can't do that anymore. Jesus. But um, that's, I could never get to it. I could never get to, to, this, to this weight. Uh, that's how I got to that weight. I actually tested this out and was able to get tremendous uh, benefits from it, strength gain. So it's not just a technique for maintaining fitness or a substitute for actual workouts. If you want to push your performance, um, 
you know, give it a shot. Here's one way to do it. This is one strategy. If you have six hours to kill or you're a fitness fanatic, I know most people are like, that doesn't sound like fun, but for fitness fanatics, it sounds like a blast. I know it was for me. Um, I did a 15 or 20 minute workout every other hour from 9 a.m. to, I did it for like till 6 p.m., right? So 9 a.m. I did two sets of uh, bench press, two sets of squats, um, and two sets of barbell rows. And I picked a weight that was not high intensity and not, it was kind of like moderate high. So I would do eight reps with something that I could probably do 12 reps with, right? Mm. So I did that at 9 a.m. Then I did it again at 11 a.m. And so every other hour. And to my first off, wasn't that hard. So I didn't feel that hard. It felt fine going out there. Didn't have to warm up after the first or second trial. I thought I'd have to warm I didn't have to just go out there and did it. I noticed that my strength actually went up halfway through. So by the third or fourth one, I felt stronger, which is kind of interesting. Uh, probably a central nervous system adaptation of some sort. Could also be like a circadian aspect that you've discovered inadvertently. You know, maybe that you're, that you're maybe stronger later in the day. Yeah, well. that's that's a good that's a good point. I didn't think of that. Um, as it got later, I started to get a little bit fatigued, but otherwise, I was able to perform all the reps, all the sets. By the end of the day, if you added up all the reps and all the sets I did, it's way more than I would have ever done in any single workout. I was not sore or barely sore the next day, so I did tremendous amount of volume more than I would ever fit do in my traditional one hour or one and a half hour workout. I was barely sore the next day. Two days or three days later, I did my normal workout and I was stronger. I was stronger in everything um, in a very short period of time. So it's got some pretty extreme performance enhancing benefits as well. It's not just for, you know, uh, you know, I, I don't, I can't get to the gym, so I want to do something. Hmm. Uh, it's, it can go both ways. Would one of the potential downsides though be that you're not getting sort of the more cardio side of the workout that you would typically get doing an hour long workout where you're compressing a bunch of different sets together w within the span of an hour. So it's stamina and endurance. Yeah. Well, it depends, right? So uh, now if your performance goals are stamina and endurance, let's say you're a triathlete uh, or a runner. Yeah, you're, you're right. You're, you're not going to get those kind of, uh, of benefits. If your goal is strength, muscle building and metabolism boosting, um, you're going to get a, a, a tremendous benefits hmm. uh, from doing it that way. If your goal is to build resiliency, okay, because there's a different type of stamina, right? There's the stamina that says, I can go two hours nonstop. Then there's the stamina that you see a lot with blue-collar workers, where they're not going like super intense for an hour, but they're out there swinging a hammer or using a shovel for eight hours. It's a different type of stamina, right? It's a type of resilience. You're going to build a lot of that hmm. uh, by training this way. So, But yes, training adaptations are pretty specific to the way that you train. But I, you know, one thing I will add, uh, for most people in the context of the modern American life, if you had to pick one, I guess, goal or thing to go after that would protect you uh, against the ills of, uh, of modern life, which are you know, obesity, diabetes, um, you know, metabolic disease, that kind of stuff. And then, you, of course, you sprinkle in there that we tend to be very busy, but we also tend to be very sedentary. And then you add in the factor that we're surrounded by food um, and it's easy to get to and it's inexpensive. Um, and you could only pick one like kind of thing to really go towards. Aim, go towards muscle building because it's going to positively affect your metabolism the most. And having a body that naturally burns more calories is the best insurance you can have um, with all against all those things that we that I just listed. If you have a fast metabolism today, 
you are at a tremendous advantage. Maybe not 10,000 years ago when food was scarce and mm. you were constantly moving. A fast metabolism might have been, you know, it was much better to have a slow metabolism. But today, right now, you know, if you're working 10 hours a day, you know, in front of your computer. So you're busy, but you're not moving much. So it's not like you're manually burning calories. Food is really, really good and it's all over the place. Having a body that burns lots of calories is going to protect you. And so that would be the goal. I would, that's usually the direction I point uh, people in, unless they're, they have very specific, you know, stamina goals or athletic goals, in which case I'll train them a little differently. Putting on as much muscle as you can for your frame, for your genetics, for your gender. It just, you know, here's a funny thing. When you say it that way, yes, that's true. But here's the, here's why I don't say it that way, although that's technically true. It tends to turn off a segment of the audience, right? So a female listening right now will be like, put on as much muscle as possible. Like, I don't want to look like, you know, a, a bodybuilder. I want to just have a, a tight, sculpted physique. Well, first off, you're not going to look like a bodybuilder. Building a ton of muscle like that is... Uh, virtually impossible for most people. Men can build a decent amount of muscle, but uh, naturally they're not going to look anything uh, like a bodybuilder. Women uh, almost never. I think in my entire career, I think I've only ever worked with or met one woman who was natural who built muscle uh, where she had to kind of scale her training down to, so she didn't build too much muscle. It almost never happens. The goal is to train like you're aiming for those things. Yeah. Send that signal because that signal tells your body a couple different things. One, extra muscle does burn more calories. It's an expensive tissue, so fat doesn't require many calories to maintain. Muscle requires more calories uh, to maintain. It's a, it's a very active tissue, so five pounds of muscle is just going to burn more calories than five pounds of, uh, of fat. Now, uh, I know the science says it's not a ton more calories, and people will argue with me sometimes and say, well, you know, a pound of muscle only burns like, you know, to maintain an extra maybe five calories or something like that. And okay, uh, here's the problem with that. Uh, yes, that's technically true, but the first off, human metabolism is the second most complex, m mammalian metabolism in general, one of the most complex things we've identified in the universe, right? The human brain being up there <laughs> above that. Below that, it's metabolism. And metabolism is hard to measure. It's not, it's not very clean, right? So it's not like I gained five pounds of muscle, so now I burn X amount more calories every single time. The metabolism can be very efficient or non-efficient with its calories. There's a lot of ways that the body wastes calories, either through heat production or other processes that we haven't really fully identified. So just training and eating in a way that tells your body to burn more calories. You burn more calories by having more muscle, but you also burn more calories because your body has decided to become less efficient with calories. I mean, there's studies that have been done on prisoners of war, POWs, who were able to survive on like a few hundred calories a day for years. But if you look at their lean body mass and you do the math, it didn't necessarily make sense. Their bodies had learned to be extremely, extremely efficient. There was a, uh, another study that was done uh, years ago, really, really interesting one on modern hunter-gatherers, I think it was the Hadza tribe, and they, they, they found that they didn't burn that many more calories than the average sedentary uh, Westerner, even though they're hunter-gatherers. And you yeah, think, how is that possible? Their bodies became efficient. Um, so you can tell your body to be more or less efficient with calories by the types of signals that you send your body. And one of the best ways to do that, if, you're, if you want your body to be less efficient with calories, which is, you know, aka fashion metabolism, is to build muscle. Also, getting good sleep uh, does this as well. Getting poor sleep tends to tell the body to become efficient 
with calories. Chronically dieting tells the body to become efficient with calories. So when I use the word efficient, think of it this way, right? So imagine you're driving a car, like an, uh, it's a, some kind of an advanced AI car that adjusts its, its engine and its gas mileage based off of how you use it. So imagine you're driving this car and you go very slow, but you drive all day long, but you're going really, really slow, long distance. Your car is going to turn itself into, it doesn't need much power, but it's going to go long distance. It's going to become a one cylinder, you know, hybrid car. It's going to adapt, right? Yeah. And it's, or like if it had a transmission, which I know, I don't think electric cars do, but it it basically stays in that one gear the whole time. Yes. 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 Now imagine if you're, if you drive your car and you're like racing it, you know, like twice a day I'm going as fast as I can, zero to 60. Well, it's going to give you a big, powerful engine. Doesn't really care too much about efficiency. So it's going to be less efficient with, uh, with gasoline. So your body kinds of kind of does that. So lifting weights, getting good sleep, not, you know, training in a way where you're trying to burn tons of calories, um, not chronically dieting, actually feeding yourself in a way that is more conducive to building muscle that teaches your body to be less efficient with calories. And, uh, you know, and this is my experience. Okay. But I know lots and lots of coaches and trainers who've done this with their own clients and even with themselves. I mean, I've gotten people's metabolisms, their, their, their basal metabolic rates, according to how we measure it with how many calories they're able to eat and their body weight, how they can maintain it. I've gotten people to boost it 500, 800, a thousand calories. You know, imagine if your metabolism was 800 calories faster on its own, you know, how much cardio you have to do to burn 800 calories. It's like two hours of intense cardio uh, every single day. Imagine if you just burn that many more. You know, mm. I had a client years ago who was a, uh, she competed in, she did marathons and then she wanted to do uh, bikini competitions where they, they diet down, get real lean and do that whole thing. But when she came to me, she was, she was uh, lifting weights three days a week, running six days a week, and then also doing extra stuff, Pilates and that kind of stuff. And she had chronically dieted herself down to the point where she was doing all that activity so lifting three days a week, tons and tons of, I think she was running uh, something like five miles on average every single day, which is quite a bit. So lots of exercise, cutting her calories. She was at the point where to get any leaner, and she was lean, but she wasn't shredded. She was like uh, maybe 19% body fat, which is good for the average person that's lean. But to get on stage as a bikini competitor, you're, you're aiming for you know, 13, 14, 15% body fat. So she needed to get leaner. She couldn't get any. She she had to eat twelve hundred calories a day to maintain. Anything lower than that uh, was just unreasonable with all that activity. And so she came to me. And she's like, "What do I do? I can't. I don't want to eat less than twelve hundred calories a day. I don't want to run more. I can't work out anymore. Like, am I stuck? And what happens when I cut some of this down? Am I just going to blow up? So what we did is we gave ourselves a long period of time. So I said, "Okay, give me at least a year. We got to kind of reverse out of this." So I slowly reduced her running to the point where she was only running once a week. Then I would have her, she would walk on the other days. Um, so no more running. I was having her lift weights three days a week, but we changed the way she was lifting. She was doing circuit training before. She trained with me and it looked like almost like a traditional strength-based workout, almost like a powerlifting slash bodybuilding type of workout. So we're, you know, two-minute rests in between sets, straight sets. You know, we're doing exercises like deadlifts and squats and bench presses and rows, just your traditional muscle building exercises. I took her calories and I slowly ramped them up. So we would go up a hundred calories this week, monitor her weight, uh, go up another hundred calories. Oh, we got a little bit of weight gain. Let's keep it at that. Let's keep it at these calories until we 
you know, we stabilize, then we bump it up again. And we kind of did this process. And uh, after I think it was eight months, um, she was consuming 2,300 calories a day and she wasn't running and she was lifting weights three days a week and that was it. Mm. And then she was able to diet down from there and she was able to compete because now she was going from 2,300 calories instead of 1,200 calories. So that's just one example of, you know, the strategy that, you know, I'm kind of highlighting here. I'm not the most sports inclined guy. It's all good. I know my strengths and I'm sticking to them. But even though I'm not all that sporty, that doesn't mean I don't like to work up a sweat. For all you sweaty athletes or non-athletes, today's sponsors are right up your alley. Element, spelled L-M-N-T, but pronounced Element, is what I like to call a power powder packet. Say that five times fast. Element contains the electrolytes you need in the perfect ratio. 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. Essentially, Element is the best tasting and better for you sports drink. No sugar, gluten, artificial ingredients, or plastic. Just the stuff that you need for proper hydration. Proper hydration requires water and electrolytes, FYI. Often electrolytes are forgotten. One of my favorite ways to use Element is after I do a little boxing with my boxing trainer, Minju. Shout out to Minju. I have my Element all prepped and ready to go. Don't worry, Minju. Next time I'll bring you some Element too. Head over to drinkelementt.com slash geniuslife to try it out for yourself. Element offers free shipping and no questions asked refunds, so anyone can try Element risk-free. However, I'm fairly confident that a refund won't be necessary. Again, that is drinkelementt.com slash geniuslife. Now, you don't have to worry about getting sweaty because we've got the hydration and electrolyte replacement that you need. Thank goodness. Now go and get your sweat on. The ButcherBox crew has arrived as the final sponsor for this week's episode. Heck yes, meat and fish straight to your door. What more could you want? When it comes to food subscription boxes, you have a boatload of options. It's overwhelming, but that's where I step in with the help of the ButcherBox team. ButcherBox is one of the easiest ways to get high quality, humanely raised meat that you can trust. They deliver 100% grass-fed, grass-finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage-breed pork, and wild-caught seafood directly to your door. Great-tasting meat you can feel good about. I've been craving a nice piece of wild-caught salmon, and in order to make that craving a reality, I had to do nothing. That's right, I did nada. I had a piece of salmon for my ButcherBox order waiting for me, and guess what? The ButcherBox team has a really great deal for all you guys for this Black Friday season. For a limited time, new members get six free grass-fed, grass-finished steaks when they go to butcherbox.com genius. That's two New York strips and four top sirloins added to your first ButcherBox for free when you go to butcherbox.com genius. Act quickly. This offer is only good through Cyber Monday. From Black Friday to Cyber Monday, six free grass-fed and grass-finished steaks by going to butcherbox.com genius. That's a badass deal. I would take it myself if I wasn't already a customer. So go check them out. And now back to my chat with Sal. One of the things I love about you and your and your cohorts is that your motto is seek health and aesthetics follow. Yes. Which I love because I mean I feel like that's something that um, is just I mean it's so uh, ironic that health would be so frequently overlooked within the fitness community at large, but it's not for you guys. So my question is, where does aerobic exercise fit within the exercise regimen that you guys? prescribe. And I make the distinction between aerobic and cardio because sure. you don't necessarily need to do cardio to get in that aerobic exercise. But for, you know, for people who are like maybe spending more time sedentary these day, these days, not don't don't quite have access to a gym with the ease uh, that they used to, like, how do you integrate and, and how important is it to integrate aerobic exercise into, yes. your, into your into your week? So two things. So I'll address the seek health uh, and aesthetics will follow first. And then let's talk about uh, aerobics or cardiovascular exercise uh, within that. Uh, that sphere. So the reason why we say that about uh, health is because, you know, we, we're from the fitness space and the fitness space from a, 
you know, perspective of the people that work in fitness. So like trainers, fitness influencers, you know, people who run gyms, that kind of stuff tend to have some of the worst health uh, that you'll see. Now, I don't mean worst health in terms of obesity and that kind of stuff, but I mean in terms of relationship to their body, uh, relationship to exercise and diet. You see lots of eating disorders. You see lots of, um, you know, body obsession and just unhealthy obsessions with these types of things. And what ends up happening with that is over time, those obsessions tend to, well, they, they produce poor health, which then produces poor aesthetics. The irony of it is that obsession eventually produces a body that doesn't look good. Um, health looks good. Poor health looks bad. Now you can get away with poor health and chasing aesthetics for a while by maybe taking anabolic steroids and you know by by uh, you know punishing your body by doing extreme diets. But over time, that'll fail. Once your health fails, you don't look good anymore. And ultimately, the reason why we think something looks good anyway physically is because you know naturally, evolutionarily speaking, it exemplifies good health, right? Why do we like nice a nice midsection on a man and wide shoulders? Well, that shows high testosterone, good athletic performance. Like, why do we like you know on women to have a certain hip to waist ratio? Why is there this universal hip to waist ratio that looks good? Well, we know that that actually strongly correlates to successful childbirth and healthy offspring. So that's why we find those things to be attractive in the first place. And if you're always chasing health, if you're always trying to be healthy, you're going to get a great deal of aesthetics, a great deal of health and a great deal of aesthetics. If you're constantly chasing looks, if it's only about looks, you'll get some looks, but you'll eventually lose your health and then you'll lose the looks. So the best strategy long-term, even if you don't really, even if you're somebody that's like so focused on, on looks that you're like, I don't care, I just want to look good. The best strategy is still health. Go after health. Okay, so let's talk about aerobics and cardiovascular exercise. I am not anti-cardiovascular exercise at all. I uh, What I say is if you only have the time to devote to focusing on one type of exercise, your best bet is probably resistance training for the reasons that I highlighted. But And that's just the reality for most people. They just don't have the time to devote to lots of different forms of exercise. But if you want optimal health, you should do. You need to do some form of cardiovascular exercise. Now, the health benefits from cardiovascular exercise really come from just the active part. They don't necessarily come from the extreme endurance part. Okay, so you don't need to train uh, in a way that makes you a phenomenal marathon runner or cyclist or I can run you know, a mile and under X amount. In fact, those extreme endeavors can sometimes be counter health. Um, at some point when you're pushing performance, um, you start to get a little trade off with health. This is true for strength as well. Like if you, you know, meet power lifters whose ultimate goal is to lift the most weight uh, in their weight categories or whatever, you'll also find a great deal of uh, joint injury and, you know, some dysfunction because they're constantly pushing performance. So if, if you're looking for health with cardiovascular activity, it's just to move. The best form of, uh, in, from a health perspective, longevity and health perspective, the best form of, what we, what we could put in the category of cardiovascular exercise is walking. Nothing comes close to walking. And there's a couple reasons for it. Number one, we all know how to walk. So that, that sounds funny, right? Because you think, well, I know how to run. I know how to swim. I know how to do all these other forms. No, you actually don't. Most people don't, right? Um, running, for example, humans evolved uh, to do a few things really well physically. We're not the, the strongest or fastest animals in the animal kingdom, but we can throw with accuracy better than most animals, right? So we're really good at throwing. That's why we're such good hunters. Um, and we can out-trek 
almost any animal. In fact, uh, when you look at modern hunter-gatherers, the way they catch their 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 prey or whatever is they they'll hit it with a, a spear and then they'll just chase after it until it falls of exhaustion mm-hmm. for miles. We're built to run long distance. We really are. So there's nothing wrong with running from that perspective. But here's why I'd never recommend running to the average person. None of us have run since we were children up until we're adults. We just don't. So then we hit our 20s, 30s, 40s, and we decide it's time to go outside and run. <laughs> and it's a skill that we don't have. We just don't have it. Our tech, our, our technique is terrible. So running is associated with the most injuries, the, the you know ankle and knee and back injuries. And uh, we treat it like... And this is true for all exercise, so I'm not just picking on running here. We don't treat exercise like a skill, right? We, we, we treat it like a workout. And so here's what I mean by that. Nobody thinks to themselves, I'm going to go outside and run to get really good at running. Like, I'm going to perfect my running. They think, I'm going to go run to get tired, <laughs> right? Oh, it's time to work out. I'm going to go run until I can't breathe anymore because that's what's important. That's terrible because when you push yourself to fatigue, especially if you don't run well, you're going to run even worse, and that causes... Hor- big problems, poor biomechanics, poor movement patterns. You're going to, you're not going to have long-term success. If you are going to start running, treat it like a skill. It's going to take you years. You go out and you practice running and you perfect it and you never run to fatigue because as soon as you fatigue, your form goes out the window. Just like if you had to learn how to golf, like you'd never go out there and just swing as hard as you could. You'd perfect the technique. So this is why I don't recommend running. People just run Terribly. Now, if you go to societies where people run from birth all the way up and it's a part of their culture, like you go look at like Kenyan, Kenyans, for example, this is part of their culture. Um, and uh, there's a, I forgot, there's, there's a, a tribe or a group in Mexico that does this as well. And they run from children all the way up and they never stop. They run, no injuries, no nothing. Uh, they've learned it. They've never lost that skill. Average person today, uh, just you tell the average person to run, it's, just, it's terrible. True for me as well, I and mean, I'm not—I never really ran all the time, so that's why I don't recommend that form. Walking, on the other hand, we all walk. So if I tell the average person to try to walk, you know, for 20 to 30 minutes twice a day, they're probably not going to hurt themselves. They're probably not going to cause biomechanic, you know, issues and muscle recruitment pattern issues, and they can get some of those benefits of the activity and, and whatever. It's also—it's easy. You just go outside and do it, um, and. I like walking also because um, it's easier to inject into your everyday life. Mm. So here's a great strategy. If you want to increase your activity level, rather than scheduling a workout, um, just inject some activity into your everyday life. So uh, you may do something like after breakfast, lunch, and dinner, I do a 10-minute walk. You always eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So now you've attached it to a, a, a routine. You've attached it to something that you do anyway. So now it's going to be attached to this, this automatic routine. 10 minutes three times a day is 30 minutes a day. And you end up finding great consistency and adherence versus schedule a 30-minute run every single day or whatever, or a 30-minute workout. It's a lot more intimidating. It's a lot more intimidating. It's hard. You know, it's funny. Marketers have put pieced this together. Supplement companies are really good at this. Uh, years ago, uh, supplement companies, you know, they're trying to figure out how do we get people to buy more bottles of our stuff. Like we convince people to buy protein powder, but they buy a, a jug of it and then they never buy more because they'll use some of it and then it stays in the cupboard and they ne- never use it again. So years ago, the, the muscle building, you know, protein powder community figured out that it would be great to convince people that 
they had to take protein right after they worked out, <laughs> right? Like this is the most important thing. Like you have to have protein after you work out. It's the, the, the what do they call it? The anabolic window, yeah. right? You remember that? Um, and uh, it, I mean, they, they sold it so hard that, you know, when I was a kid, I thought if I didn't have protein right after I worked out, it was a wasted workout, in fact. I used to think that way too. Yeah, it was actually brilliant because what they did is they took all the people that worked out and they attached uh, this protein powder to the ritual that they already did. And protein consumption went up and people bought more because they brought their protein shaker cup with them and their their protein with them. Just decades of protein paranoia. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Permeating our culture. Exactly. This is also why medications, they'll say first first thing in the morning, right before bed, you know, with lunch, um, even if you don't necessarily have to take it with food, it helps people stay consistent. Hmm. Um, So if you can attach your cardio to daily activities like, you know, my favorite is breakfast, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You know, five to ten minute walk after each meal. It's, that's what I'll do. Super easy, and I find myself being uh, very, very consistent versus trying to schedule out, you know, a workout or whatever. Probably really good for your mental mental health as well. It is also, and I'm sure you're familiar with these studies. These what do they call them? Postprandial uh, activity, or you know, preprandial or postprandial. I think that's a, if I'm using the right terminology. Activity great for insulin. Uh, regulation, blood sugar, you know, improving your, your insulin sensitivity and regulating your blood sugar. It's exceptional. Just that small 10-minute window of activity post-meal. Uh, Reduces postprandial glycemia. There you go. Yeah, you I knew like you'd a, know the science if you have like a, <laughs> If you have like a high-carb meal, yeah, just a very short walk. Like a, I think I've... I think back when I first uh, read those studies and I, I made like a video on my YouTube about it, it's actually still up there and gets gets a ton of views, but um, it was a very short walk. It was like a walk around the block. Yes. Or something. You know, what's funny about this too, Max, is that, um, and I love, and I know you're, you're just like this. You're, you're, you're a fanatic about learning this kind of stuff like I am. One thing that I did a long time ago was I looked at practices um, that, that I would find in common in, in many, many cultures, practices that have lasted a long time. And oftentimes these practice, if a practice has lasted that long, if it stood the test of evolution, because there's evolution, there's biological evolution, but there's also evolution of ideas, right? Why does an idea, uh, you know, last so long? Because there's probably some kind of benefit, either emotional, psychological, spiritual, or oftentimes uh, physical or health benefit. Many, 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 many cultures take a walk after eating dinner. Hmm. Many of them. It's a, it's a cultural thing. I know in southern Italy, this is a thing. We'd have a big dinner, and then we'd all go for a walk. I know lots of uh, Asian cultures do the same thing. They do this very, very slow walk after dinner. You find this in Middle Eastern cultures, um, and this is probably why. Without realizing, they probably found that. And you hear people say, oh, it helps digest in and Maybe well, do, I mean, well, aside from the the glycemic uh, benefits, it helps push, helps move th- move things around so that they pass through your digestive tract. I mean, a, a walk first thing in the morning is really good, like to help you go to the bathroom. You know, like if you're <laughs> it's true. try try like being regular in the bathroom if you're sitting all day. Like it's one of the reasons why when I take whenever I take like a super long flight, my digestion is just screwed up. Yep, yep. For the for for two or three days afterwards. Oh yeah, well we need gravity, right? Gravity, that's why our that's why the exit hole is at the bottom of our body, right? Cuz it, it, if it was the opposite, it would be very difficult. Imagine how awkward that would be. <laughs> be really strange. If it were like on top. Yeah, it'd be weird. <laughs> um, but it's because gravity helps standing up, right? Helps move things through. And then you have uh, muscles that move around the digestive system, right? The like the psoas muscles. It's a hip flexor that attaches to the femur, kind of goes through the body and attaches at the spine. 
and they're very active in walking. And so when you're walking, those muscles massage the digestive, you know, system to help with uh, digestion. So if you have like mild um, heartburn or indigestion, you may find a five or 10 minute wa uh, walk post meal uh, to be the right solution for that. Um, it, it actually makes a big difference. And then again, again, from a trainer's perspective, um, it's in my experience, people are much more consistent doing it that way. And that's my favorite form of, uh, of cardio for overall health, but I'm not knocking the other forms of cardio. I think they're all legit. They're all good. Cardio tends to be repetitive, um, in nature. So like cycling is the same thing over and over again, swimming, same thing, same thing over running, same thing over and over again, uh, rowing, so whatever form of cardio you do, uh, you want to make sure you have good technique because uh, overuse injuries can can happen, especially if it's a form of cardio where your movement isn't you know, perfect. Um, so make sure you've got perfect technique. And you don't need to go to fatigue unless your goal is like lots of endurance and stamina, like athletic goals. You don't need to train uh, to fatigue. You don't need to train for that kind of endurance. And it's and the, the, the risks don't really outweigh the benefits. Uh, so moderate walks throughout the day. Best form you'll find. What's your diet looking like these days? I want to talk about diet and its relation to uh, boosting your metabolism. Yes. Okay. So um, let's talk about the macronutrients first, so proteins, fats, and carbohydrates. They all have a thermic effect uh, on the body. So when you consume uh, a macronutrient, and it's, it's more complex than this. I'm simplifying it, right? There's a, uh, there's a thermic effect, meaning that your body burns X amount of calories metabolizing the food that you are eating. Um, protein has the highest thermic effect. So if you were to eat you know, X amount of calories of protein and then an equivalent amount of calories from carbs and fats, through the calorie out uh, side of the equation, the calorie burning side of the equation, technically the same amount of calories of protein is actually a little lower than the same amount of calories from carbs, uh, and fats because the thermic effect by like a so, quarter, right? So yeah. like protein is typically four calories per gram, but you're actually probably only assimilating three calories Yes, yeah, and after, it, it, after the thermic effect. Yeah. And it's definitely a little more complex than that, but it's, it, it, no matter how you slice it, uh, proteins burn more calories. So there's that part of metabolism, right? So aim for protein and then eat in a way that maximizes, uh, strength. So eat in a way that makes you feel strongest, that builds uh, the boat the most muscle, even though building muscle is a slow process. Just eat in that way, and what that does is it tells your body that you're prioritizing expensive tissue, which is muscle. You need it because you're strength training. You're, you're sending a signal to your body that says I need strength, and then you're feeding it yourself in a way that says we don't need to conserve energy. And what I mean by that is you're not, you know, excessively cutting calories. Right? Uh, if you just by cutting calories, your body starts to burn less calories. By the way it starts to slow it, its metabolism down a little bit. So you want to eat in a way that tells your body it's okay. It's okay. I, I've got food coming in. I've got calories coming in. So you want to, if, you're, if your goal is to burn body fat, you do need to be in a calorie deficit, but it's a good idea to inject uh, some higher calorie days in your diet, or it's a good idea to have a diet break. You know, they did a study, in fact, where they, I don't remember how long the study ran, but they compared uh, a straight, like let's say 12-week diet to a diet that included uh, uh, diet breaks where they would have a couple days where the, the calories were higher or a week in between, you know, every four weeks or something like that where there was higher calories and everything else being equal. And they found that the, the, the calorie break group burned more body fat and built more muscle. And I would surmise probably had a faster metabolism 
at the end. This is what I found with uh, with clients that I've worked with as well. So if your goal is fat loss, you have to be in a calorie deficit. But I typically say don't be in a deficit for longer than three to, to four weeks. So you be in your deficit for three to four weeks, then maybe have three or four days where you're in a slight surplus. Is right? that what is that what people call like a refeed? That's what the, the fitness and the muscle building, bodybuilding space would call a refeed. <laughs> or the term that I hate is a cheat day or a cheat meal. I hate that because it, it encourages uh, bad behaviors with food, which is it, another conversation. Interesting. But, yeah. So, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a diet break or really think of it this way. I'm eating more to let my body know um, it's okay to burn more calories and not be so efficient with calories. So let's say your, your metabolism and your activity is burning 2,000 calories a day. So you're eating 1,500 calories a day to try to burn body fat. So 1,500 calories on average a day over the course of three weeks. By the fourth week, it's probably a good idea to eat 2,100 calories or 2,200 calories a day. So maybe 100 calories or 200 calories more than your maintenance. Are you going to gain any weight or body fat at the end of the week? No. Maybe a little water, but no body fat. But you'll get a little metabolism boost from it. Or at the very least, you'll mitigate the metabolism slowdown that happens. And so you could do that every three weeks or every four weeks, and you'll have more long-term success uh, you know, doing it that way. Now, I don't like treating it like a cheat day. Uh, even diet break sometimes encourages you know, this behavior of kind of this restrict binge mentality. So try not to think of it that way. An even better approach, in my opinion, is to undulate calories on a daily basis. So I give people uh, weekly goals rather than daily goals. So if your goal is 2,000 calories a day, that gives you 14,000 calories for the week. Okay, well, today I ate 1,000 calories. Tomorrow I'll have 3,000 calories. The next day I have 2,500 calories. The next day I have, at the end of the week, I equal out to you know, the same total number of calories. But I find that undulation is better uh, behaviorally. It's better for my psyche. It matches real life a little bit more. We don't eat the same thing so meticulously every single day. And I would bet that it probably has a more favorable metabolism effect than eating the same exact calories uh, every single day. Super interesting. What are some other things that you see um, talked about in the fitness community that makes you facepalm? Like, uh, <laughs> like, I'm just curious, like, what what makes you, like, behind the screen, like, Sal Stefano go, like, this is the worst advice ever? You know, in, in, in the hardcore fitness space, it's almost all about calories and macros. It's, it's, it's like, if it fits your macros, if it fits your calories, it's okay. And that, that, that comes from the body obsession side of my space where it's like, hey, I'm burning body fat. Hey, I look good. Therefore, it's all okay. Uh, artificial sweeteners is a good example, right? Zero calorie sweeteners. So they'll say, hey, these, these diet sodas, um, because they have no calories, go to town. Enjoy yourself with them. Now, in my experience, now technically, yeah, you have zero calorie sweetener. And I know there's some studies that show that it may affect insulin sensitivity. There may be an effect on the microbiome. But let's just pretend that it had no effect on the, on the body physiologically. It literally was a no negative effect physiologically, zero calorie sweet soda. Well, what can the harm be? Well, there's a couple, a couple problems still. And they're all behavioral. One, when you are trying to eat healthy, calories are a barrier. They're a natural obstacle. And they're a healthy obstacle. It, it really is a healthy obstacle. 
if, you know, use me as an example. I'm a health-minded individual. I want to have something sweet. If I have a, a soda that's got sugar in it and it's 130 or 200 calories, that natural barrier tells me or helps me, you know, say I'm going to have one. I'm going to have one Coke. You know, it's you know 200 calories because those calories and the sugars are that natural barrier. If it's artificially flavored, uh, no calories, that barrier has been removed. I'm going to start to have start to develop this behavior of binging on sweet flavors. I'm going to start having five, ten, a whole case of sodas. I've worked with people in the fitness space who all they drink are diet sodas because what the heck? It's got no calories. Well, there's some there's some bleed out from that approach that bleeds over into other behaviors. Number one, um, you start to change your palate. Uh, you, you, you start to perceive sweet a little bit differently. Now, naturally sweetened foods, fruits, you know, berries, they don't taste quite as palatable. They're a little bit bland. Um, so that messes with you uh, a little bit. Um, sweet uh, does encourage this kind of fervorous behavior um, anything that's palatable encourages this kind of fervorous behavior. So think back to the last time you, you know, you binged on something that tasted a lot, right? Here's a characteristic of that. You're, you've got, let's say you're eating a bag of chips. That's my food, right? If I, if I eat chips for me is like, that's binge food. I'm going to eat and I'm not going to stop until it's all gone, right? <laughs> I'm chewing on a chip, but I'm thinking about the next one. Right. It's not even about the food that's in my mouth. It's about the one that I'm about to get in my mouth. It's never about the one that's in there, right? That's a behavior that is terrible for long-term uh, success with nutrition. It just doesn't work. I'm not savoring and enjoying the food that is in my mouth. There's a reason why people who are you know, bakers, who bake things from scratch, tend to, have, to, tend to not have the same problems as people who eat processed baked foods that barrier of baking the food and taking your time and savoring it. And then you take a bite of the thing you just spent two hours making and you're not going to scarf it down. Yeah. You actually sit down and enjoy it. Maybe with somebody that you, you care about or your friend and like, Hey, do take, you know, try these out. My grandma made them from scratch. It's a recipe from Italy or whatever. And you're enjoying, you're savoring it. That binge uh, mentality, binge behavior is not about savoring. It's not about enjoying the food. It's about, I got to get the net. It's almost like a drug, right? Uh, Looking at foods like calories and, and macros, and if this doesn't have calories, it's all good, encourages those behaviors. This is why the studies on artificial, uh, artificially sweetened foods never show weight loss. They never do. Now, if you control all the calories, they do, because if I take out 200 calories worth of soda and replace it with zero calories worth of you know, Diet Coke, yeah, you'll start to lose weight. But in the real world, it never works out that way. What ends up happening every single time is people cut out their their normal soda, replace it with diet soda, replace the calories with something else. Yeah. Behaviorally speaking, it screws them over. I think that distinction is so important that you know, you'll you'll get shit from people in the fitness community if you call out artificial sweeteners, but the fitness community is a self-selected population of people <laughs> yeah. who are by definition highly vested in their fitness, yes. you know, and they're paying attention to what they're putting in their mouth. But in the ad libitum feeding environment, you know, like in the free uh, living real world environment. I think it's super important to study what these drinks do to our to our behavior. Not my behavior, not your behavior, because you're hyper conscious. You're already aware, mm -hmm. you know, of how food affects you and your hunger signals and all that. And you know when to compensate if you've had an indulgence here. You know, you maybe remove you know some calories or some food from you know at the end of the day. But that's not the way that most people 
think about what they put into their face. No, and in you know the again, let's go. Let's look at the fitness space. Uh, some of the worst eating behaviors um, and 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 food relationships I've ever seen were in the fitness space. You're talking about people who will go on a 16 week extremely strict diet and workout regimen regimen. I mean, they are weighing and measuring everything, even the the water that they put in their mouth so that they can go on stage or take a photo shoot for their Instagram and look just insanely shredded or whatever. The second the goal is hit, the second the content like Max, I'm not exaggerating. I've seen female bikini competitors who hit the stage at 115 pounds, 120 pounds shredded, gain 30 pounds in a month. <laughs> wow. Like of water and fat. You know, you want to know what's crazy about that, by the way? There actually, there's some interesting studies. When you do that, that be, when you do that yo-yo where you go extreme in one and then in the other direction. So we know that the human body, when you gain body fat, essentially it's fat cells growing, right? You don't add fat cells to your body. I mean, you do, but there's a couple really, there's really only two times you do that in your life. It's when you're going through puberty or in the third trimester of pregnancy, we've seen this happen. For the most part, fat cells shrink or they grow. But we have witnessed in these extreme examples, people adding fat cells to their body. It's as if the body who went from a 16-week extreme diet to extreme binging and gorging is trying to find a way to capture all this extra energy. And it's actually adding fat cells. So in my space, you know, you, you, you know, athletes will talk about burnout. Like, oh, I did all these shows throughout the year and I can't, I don't know why I, my body just won't look as sharp as it used to. It might be because they're adding fat cells to their body each time, making their bodies more effective fat gain machines, making it harder uh, to burn body fat. So that extreme uh, behavior, uh, not great at all. So for everybody else, uh, if you, if you start to follow their advice of counting calories, it starts to encourage that. Even if you don't do a competition, here's what ends up happening. You have your meal plan. I have my calories. I have my macros. And I'm doing really good. I'm doing really good. It's a willpower thing. I'm motivated. Uh-oh, motiva- motivation starting to wane, which it does. Motivation doesn't stay with us uh, forever. What do I do now? Oh, no, I went out with my friend. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to have one slice of pizza. Now here's what happens. I eat that slice of pizza you know what? I'm off of it anyway. <laughs> Screw it. I'm just going to go crazy. And then it turns into the opposite behavior. It's just on the wagon, off the wagon behavior. That does not work in the real world long term. You know, here's the ideal. Here's what you want. You want to be in a situation where food is, it's relaxed for you. It's not, I'm counting, I'm measuring, I'm worrying, what's going on? It's, I eat and I feed myself uh, in a way that feeds my health, that feeds my energy. Sometimes it feeds me socially. Sometimes I feed the hedonistic side of myself or I want to enjoy the flavor and the taste. I mean, you know, my, I'm, I'm a, a first-generation American. My parents are Sicilian immigrants. We're Italian. Like we, you know, eating for us is a, it's a sport, right? <laughs> we, we love food, right? You better believe when I go to my mom's house for a Sunday dinner or it's Christmas and my aunts and my grandmother put to Yeah, I'm at that moment I'm not feeding my physiological self. I'm not feeding myself, you know, to try to maximize my my appearance or my insulin levels or whatever. No, at that moment, you know what's important for my health? The health important aspect of that is bonding. 
It's enjoying the moment. It's, you know, having a great time. There's nothing wrong with that. Most of the time I eat in a way that serves my physiological health. But the key here is it's relaxed. I don't stress about it all the time. And so I don't end up finding myself go through this on the wagon, off the wagon thing. So in that context, let's say you do eat healthy most of the time because most of the time that's probably the right thing to do. And I mean healthy in the physiological sense. And then you go out with your friend. And then you do say, you know, I'm going to have a slice of pizza. That's it. Usually that's it. I had that slice of pizza and that's okay. I don't feel like, uh-oh, I'm off. I might as well go crazy and have tons of pizza. It tends to be much more moderate and it's a relaxed, natural approach. And the fitness space misses this completely. For them, it's like you're eating the right calories and macros or you're off. And then the other thing that I hate is the whole like, and I know you've talked about this a lot, uh, there is no good or bad food. And, you know, <laughs> No, there is. There's there's definitely garbage food and there's definitely food that's got more more value. Um, and, you know, heavily processed garbage food uh, usually is pretty bad. The only time I could think of my, you know, physiologically, it's always bad. But the only time I could see any value is if maybe, you know, like I'll, I'll give you an example. This is hilarious. When I was a kid, uh, we I used to go to my grandma's house all the time. And my grandma usually didn't buy snacks or anything like she's old school Italian, right? So she would cook lots of foods. But uh, one time when I was a kid, she took me to the grocery store and she said, hey, you know, why don't you pick something? And so I saw this box of crackers and it had this picture of this little cute chicken on it. Chicken in a biscuit crackers. That sounds disgusting. You ever eat these, by the way? No, no. Okay, it sounds gross, right? Chicken in a biscuit. It's like you're eating a cracker that tastes like chicken soup. I'm not exaggerating. It's Really weird. At your grandma's house, your grandma had them for you? They, so she picked it. So I picked them out at the grocery store. Oh. Okay. So she bought them and I liked them. And so every time I went there, it was this thing that my grandma would get for me, these chicken and a biscuit crackers. Wow. Okay. So the value for me is- I feel like that's not the kind of thing that Jews eat. <laughs> no. Yeah, I, 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 I didn't grow up with those. <laughs> what, would you, what would you have? Like matzo ball? Uh, <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> crackers. Just like that. What did I have growing up? I had, oh, Entenmann's Donuts and these Dutch Mill, I think they were called, like cookies. I mean, I had like all kinds of pastries, but yeah. never, never chicken in a Yeah, so for me, the the maybe the value of eating a heavily processed box of garbage, like chicken and a biscuit crackers, is, is, you know, remembering the time I had with my grandma, maybe. Mm. Which, you know- uh, it's not like I do that every single day. I don't even do that. I, I might do that once a year. You know, I might get it and you know, with my grandma and eat them and be like, oh yeah, I remember that time. So there may be some value in some of that stuff, but yeah, there's definitely bad food and good food. And, and the fitness space is very strange with how they present nutrition. It all comes from the that body obsession uh, point of view, and that really annoys the the crap out of me. They also look at exercise that way. Like what I said about walking, oftentimes they'd be like, oh, it's a waste of time. Yeah. It's really a microcosm. I mean, there's the body obsession in the fitness community. There's the preponderance of eating disorders just on, in general, I think on Fitspo pages and among dietitians and nutritionists. There's just, there's just a lot of that. I think it's important to remind people that we live in, we've inherited a food supply that is unprecedented in terms of how difficult it is to navigate if health and longevity is your goal. So inevitably, you're going to have to restrict something, right? Whether it's calories, if you choose to eat predominantly ultra-processed foods, or ultra-processed foods, and then opt for predominantly whole, minimally processed foods. And I think that the, the area under the curve of misery is a lot less if you 
opt for minimally processed foods instead of just trying to count your calories and fit those ultra processed foods into your life. Yes, you, you got to look at it as a strategy like this. Look, ultimate, uh, excuse me, ultra processed foods are engineered to uh, make you eat more. So if you if you if you don't want to overeat in this again, like you said, this environment where there's so much food around us, it makes sense to not eat foods that encourage you to eat even more. Yeah, it makes it very difficult. You know, this is the first time in human history where we've uh, the the problem is now too much. It's not too little. We're finding that now with with technology, for example. Like we have to like figure out ways of developing good uh, relationship with technology. Otherwise, we'll be stuck on it all the time. So it's not about, there's definitely a discipline component, but the discipline is discipline in creating good behaviors. It's not in uh, the restriction uh, type of discipline. That does play a role, but if you rely on that all the time, it's a losing battle. What you do instead is you want to develop discipline around good behaviors that encourage you to eat in ways that will will you know benefit you because uh, that's the challenge nowadays. The challenge is not too little, it's too much. So you have to have a good relationship with food. Mm -hmm. A good relationship is eating, for the most part, healthy, but being okay with it and actually enjoying it. You know, and let me put it this way: if you enjoy eating healthy, you never diet, right? Yeah. You never have to fight it. It's never a problem. It's just you enjoy it. Now, I know some people listening are probably thinking, "Well, how do I do that? Like, how do I enjoy asparagus uh, like I enjoy, you know, Doritos?" It's a different kind of enjoyment. Well, also freaking cook it well, season it well. Yes, yes. I feel like a lot of people just don't know how to do that alone. You're right, but I, but I, you know, I'll, I'll push back on you uh, with that, Max. You can season asparagus however you want. <laughs> it ain't gonna, it's not gonna compete with a bag of, of, of Doritos, right? Fair, fair. But, uh, but that's part of the problem is, is that we've we've taken food, and we've just we've just been conditioned this way. The value that we place, there's a lot of value that comes with food, but we. Forget about all the other values, and the only value that we consider is uh, palatability. How good does it taste? That's the value. How good does it taste? There's a lot of other things, like how does the food make you feel? What kind of energy levels do you get? How does it affect your digestion? How does it affect your skin? How does it affect your athletic uh, performance? You know, when I was a kid, I hated meat. I hated the taste of meat. It, it, it was, I hated it so much. My mom, when she used to, when I was a kid, she jokes around that she'd, I'd have a piece of meat and I would chew on that same piece of meat for an hour because I couldn't stand, <laughs> I don't want to eat anymore. Now, today, I love the taste of meat. Why do I love the taste of meat? Probably because I've associated it with increased muscle and performance and now that I've got those benefits and I've made that connection, now it's a, it's a different relationship uh, with meat, right? So you can develop different relationships with food by identifying all of the benefits uh, that food provides. You know, when I go on, on long trips, my digestion tends to go be a little off whack. When I come home, I crave vegetables, steamed vegetables with olive oil. That's it. Why? That helps my digestion the most. But I actually crave them because I've now created that association, that strong connection with them, that, uh, that relationship with those foods uh, because of those benefits. So you know, and I, one way I've, I did this with clients, and you can even try this, uh, you know, if you're listening, you can try this at home, is keep a food journal, and in the journal, identify how you feel before, during, and after, and then even the next day after certain meals. So, you know, I, I feel a little irritated right now or annoyed or I feel a little stressed out. I'm eating this. While I'm eating it, I feel this way afterwards. 
an hour after I feel this way, and then the next day I feel this way. And what you might find is that some of these foods that may not be as palatable as others. So you may say to yourself, you might not say, oh my God, I love the taste of whatever, but you may say, oh man, I felt energized afterwards. I don't feel as bloated as I normally do. Or I felt sharp. I felt sharp. I had a good conversation with my with my husband or I went and did some work and I wrote this great paper or whatever. I slept really good. And if you do that enough times, you end up you end up starting to value the foods for those types of things. And then you'll start to find that you appreciate and then enjoy them uh, over time. So you can actually train yourself to do this. Food food manufacturers know this, by the way. They, they make associations all the time, like mm. uh, beer, right? When you look at beer commercials, it's not like it's like parties and chicks and, you know, core, you know, I'm at the beach or whatever. You know, they've done studies where they've served people like ice cream in different types of containers. Like there was one study I loved where they served people chocolate ice cream in bowls or in little toilets. So they, they had little clean toilets, but little toilets. And they said, eat as much as you want. And people ate way less wow. when it was in a little toilet, obviously, because they associate it with, you know, things that aren't so tasty or whatever. Yeah. So. So you can do this with yourself by, that's what I mean by the discipline with the behaviors. And over time, you start to develop a great relationship to food. And if you do this consistently and you're patient with yourself and you, uh, are, you're empathetic with yourself because you're going you're gonna to waver back and forth, you'll find that after a certain period of time, you're eating better and it's not stressful and it's natural. And that's a long-term approach. Yeah. You got to think past your tongue. <laughs> yes, Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, dude, I love any chance I get to hang with you. Thank you so much for uh, for being back on my show and for you know always being so willing to have me on having me on yours. It means a lot. Uh, where can listeners, before I get to the last question, find you on social media? And yeah, where can they check out your programs? Because you and the Mind Pump guys, you've got all these awesome like offerings that I'm sure my listeners would love to uh, to check out. Yeah, so we have a lot of different programs and they're designed for different goals and different people. So uh, different fitness levels, access to equipment. We have at-home workout programs and we have those that uh, utilize uh, gym equipment. You can find those at mapsfitnessproducts.com. Uh, you can find me on Instagram uh, at mindpumpsal and then the podcast is mindpump and that's where you'll get the most uh, of our of our free information. We answer fitness questions on most of our episodes, and we have really, really good guests on the show. Not often. We're very picky with our guests, but you'll find Max on our podcast uh, relatively regularly. He's one of our favorite people. Love that. You, uh, you're such a great follow on social media. I know I've said this when you have been on my show previously, but people should definitely go and check you out. You do these like incredible – it's a brilliant social media strategy. I don't know if this is intentional, but you do these like – brilliant meme streams where you have like, you'll have like 20 hilarious, you're a very good meme curator too. Mm. Cause there's a lot of memes out there, but yours are always so good. But then you drop in like your freaking socio-political yeah. ramblings, which are always great. They're not ramblings at all, but, uh, but it's just a great sort of like Trojan horse <laughs> to get people to listen to your musings. Dude, you know what just happened about, you know what happened with that? What? You're a trip, right? <laughs> so you're right. I like to do that. And, um, uh, I got shadow banned. On Instagram. No way. Yeah, so my stories on average would reach fifteen to 20,000 people as of the record – well, as of before I got shadow banned, right, um, on Instagram. And then I would – every once in a while I'd do these kind of, you know, musings about, you know, socioeconomic issues, politics. I'm relatively in – I'm pretty independent with my views, so I don't go one way or the other. But because it's election season or it was election season, um, they got really, like, hard on – clamping down, I think. 
And my views went from fifteen to 20,000 down to like 1,000. Wow. Yeah, so I don't know when that'll be lifted or what the deal is, but I'm going to stick to memes for a little while. I don't necessarily want to get shadow banned anymore. It makes me a little uncomfortable what the, the, the power that these social media companies now yeah. have in terms of their ability to censor dissenting voices. Bad, in my opinion, it was a bad, bad move on their part because at as of right now, the they are protected, um, like phone companies are protected, right? So, like if you and I are talking on the phone and we do some kind of a, you know, we organize um, some kind of a crime over the phone, you know, PG and E isn't going to be liable for it. They're just they're just hosting the phone, the, the phone lines or whatever. You and I are the ones liable, right? So they're protected. Um, editors of magazines are not protected. If a magazine puts out some information that's false or wrong or whatever, they could get sued. Hmm. As, so far, social media companies have been protected, similar to phone companies. But the problem now is that they edit. Now that they censor and edit, they're opening themselves up to liability. So I think the era of open social media is over. Not to mention they've pissed off both political parties, 2016, they really angered the the Democrats. They blamed social media for Trump winning. Uh, recently, the 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 conservative side, Republicans, are blaming social media for censoring them more than the liberals. Mm. So now I, I think we're going to start to see regulation uh, as a result. For me, they're private companies. It's their platform. You know, I'm on Instagram for free. So technically, they do whatever they want. They can kick me off. Yeah, and that's fine. But I think it's going to be – I think the the era of this kind of free, open wave of things is going to be over. I think they're going to start to get regulated, and it's it's their own doing. Yeah, totally. I mean, I don't have an, an, a solution for this, but um, I do think that there's – you know, like it is – they do probably have somewhat of a responsibility to to do what they can to prevent the spread of – of misinformation, but but it's only their algorithms mm-hmm. that allow that misinformation to be spread, dude. I, and I, so the censor the 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 censorship of it all, um, and they're intervening. To me, it's just a an extremely like slippery slope, dangerous proposition. Totally, and I'm not even disagreeing with what like why they're doing it, or I'm not. That, that's not my opinion. What I'm saying is that they exactly that they went down the slippery slope. There's no way they could possibly – it's not like they, they have people checking everybody's Instagram account or Facebook or whatever. There's too many people. So they have algorithms. These algorithms are not perfect. And so you're going to piss some people off. For example, I posted a picture. So 50 Cent came out, the, the rapper, and he advocated for, for Trump, right? Because I guess Biden's tax plan came out and he said, oh, I don't want to be 25 Cent. I want to be 50 Cent. So <laughs> it was this big thing, right? And so there was this picture – of 50 cent and somebody had photoshopped it so it looked like he had Trump's hair on his head and it's the funniest picture so I posted it well their algorithm blocked the picture because it was a edited political picture and Mm. now it's a meme it's funny obviously it accidentally picked me up but it did nonetheless probably one of the reasons why I got shadow banned well I mean you're doing that to enough people and you get politicians upset enough and the public upset enough and you start to get these theories that you're doing this more to one side versus the other. Well, now you're going to get regulated and people are, and public's going to support it. So now you're screwed. So I don't know. I don't know what they're going to do. I feel, I feel bad for them because like I said, I think their days of how they've been doing things are, are numbered now. Yeah, man. Interesting times. Well, thanks again for, uh, for being here. What does it mean to you to live a genius life? Sal de Stefano? Oh man. I know you asked me that every time I come on Yeah. right now, it means, uh, 
you know, trying to maintain uh, my health during a busy time. I have an infant uh, son that was just born. Obviously, I work. Uh, I'm in the process of writing my own book, which I, I, don't, I can't talk too much about right now, but that's obviously, you know, what that, that entails. That's a busy process. So right now, Genius Life for me is balance and really maintaining uh, my health uh, more than pushing in any one direction. I need to be able to do all of it while, um, you know, while, while keeping me healthy. Love that. Well, congratulations again um, on your third. It's such an amazing, amazing gift. Um, any indications that he's going to be a bodybuilder yet at this yeah, point? Or, no. no? Yeah, no. Well, maybe if he has my wife's genetics. She's got the, <laughs> I've got the, the, the hard gainer genes. You know, I've, when you look at me, that's the... <laughs> That's uh, obsessive working out every, you know, consistently since I was 14. So oh, man. this is what you could do with a hard gainer body is about as far as it goes. <laughs> You've come pretty far. You've yeah, come pretty far. No. Um, to all you guys out there in podcast line, thank you so much for your time and attention and for tuning in. I appreciate you. Uh, share this episode of the show. Text me at 310-299-9401. Would love to hear from you. And we now have merch. Go to thegeniuslife.com to grab yourself a Genius Life t-shirt or a Genius Life hoodie or Genius Life socks with my silhouette on the ankle. They're dope. And uh, I'll catch you on the next episode. Peace. Peace.